This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. Thank you for joining us for episode one of the Tech Money Podcast. I'm joined here in the virtual studio by Eric, my producer. Now, normally you'd be hearing me introducing a guest and telling you all the awesome things they've got going on or asking them questions about their area of expertise. But as we were in our production meeting discussing which one of our great guests made the most sense for episode one, the crew here convinced me that you guys would probably prefer to hear about me first and foremost which I guess makes some sense. You need to know why you should come back and listen to this podcast again and again in the future. So that's what we'll be doing today. I'm going to turn it over to Eric and I'll just try my best not to, not to disappoint. Malcolm, you couldn't do that. There's (laughs) there's no way you could disappoint. This this is going to be fantastic. Thank you for allowing me to do this and kind of crack open the, the nut that is Malcolm and all the things that you do. Are you ready to go? I'm good, even though I think you just called me a nut. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'll let the audience determine that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right, well, let's start with the basics. What do you do, Malcolm? Yeah, I appreciate you starting with the softball. So mm-hmm. um, in my day job, as I like to call it, I'm a certified financial planner, plain and simple. I imagine by now most people know what that is and does. But outside of that, I just like to sum it up by calling myself a personal finance nerd. Like I'm constantly reading about any and everything related to money, watching TV shows related to any and everything about related to money. Hopefully Mm. one day I'll be making TV shows related to any and everything related to money. So that's, that's the gist of it. Well, I I love how you casually say that you're a CFP because for the listening audience, the CFP designation is incredibly difficult. So you should go look that up and see how rigorous it is. And he just throws it around lightly like it was no big deal. So I appreciate that very humble approach to this. I'll let you brag on me. Okay. I, <laughs> I have no problem doing that. All right. So let me ask you this. How did you actually get started in this business? Yeah. So the short version, since I want to make sure we keep everybody's attention here. After college, I applied for a rather entry-level job at Bank of America and got talked into considering their financial advisor training program at Merrill Lynch instead. Since, you know, following the Great Recession, Mm -hmm. Merrill Lynch Bank of America became one company. And 
so after talking to the recruiter about the particulars, I was sold. And so I'm forever grateful for whatever I happened to say that day that made, you know, an impression on him. Cause I don't think I'd be this happy doing anything else. Like the stars perfectly aligned in that particular conversation that mm-hmm. he, you know, made that recommendation. And I'm sure as a recruiter, it was some incentive for him to kind of sway me in that direction too. But I am, uh, I'm forever grateful that it worked out the way it did. Cause I like to say that I'm fortunate that my pockets and my passion have happened to align so perfectly. Yeah. Well, you mentioned being happy, you know, doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. What is it that you joy about the work you do as an advisor? Well, for one, like I get to work with some really interesting people, right? Like I, I, I work with folks in tech and their jobs are very dynamic. Like they're doing tours of duty is the way that I frame it, where three years, four years, five years from now, everything's going to blow up and they're going to start from scratch, which then means vicariously I'm along for the ride and it changes things for me slash us too, Mm -hmm. right. In those planning conversations, but also like, I really like puzzles and that's basically what creating a financial plan is. You're taking a bunch of seemingly unrelated pieces of a person's financial life and then stringing them together into, you know, a more cohesive picture for them. And this career just happened to be perfect for me because it allows me to spend the day solving complex problems and, and coming to some sort of a conclusion. Yeah. Well, you're no longer at Merrill Lynch. You're at a firm called CIC Wealth Management. Mm -hmm. What is the structure of your firm and what does your team look like? Yeah. So I mentioned initially that I worked for a firm that was owned by a bank. I actually did a tour of duty at two firms that were owned by banks, two of the the largest four banks in the world. And so you can imagine how uh, rigid and stodgy mm-hmm. and and all those other words I'll throw out there. Those organizations tend to be not really a fan of bureaucracy and, and org charts and all that kind of stuff. So the new firm is actually a registered investment advisor. It's an RIA. The way that I explain that to people, because that's a super wonky term, is basically just that we're franchisees of Charles Schwab, since that's where we hold all of our clients' assets. If you want me to be more technical, you know, we're an independent advisory firm. You know, we're based in the suburbs outside of DC. And we also have a location in the suburbs of Baltimore, also. But I suppose with COVID, we're 100% virtual and we'll, we'll end up staying that way. So the geography doesn't really matter uh, mm-hmm. so much, you know, especially since we're, we're licensed to work with clients across the country. Well, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that there's a bit more freedom in, in this scenario than previous. Oh, a ton more. Yeah. yeah. A ton yeah. more freedom, a, a, a lot of solutions that we can provide to clients that were not accessible inside of giant banks. Like, for mm-hmm. example, if clients want to be invested in like venture capital or private equity or whatever that that uh, suits their fancy, we've now got a lot more freedom and flexibility to do that. But then also like we're a fiduciary firm, which means that we don't get paid anything extra based on the recommendations that we make to clients. I couldn't technically and legally make that claim working for a firm that's owned by a bank because banks always have their own products mm. to to sell their customers. So whether yeah. you sell them or not, it's up to you. But because they're even available, that means that you're not technically allowed to call yourself a fiduciary. Now I can. Got it. That's a, that's a big difference. Yeah. So this, this podcast is going to be worldwide, but let's just concentrate on nationwide right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have a minimum client size or can you work with anybody who calls you? 
Yes. Yeah, so our minimum client size is traditionally $500,000. And we work on the you know same tiered percentage assets under management model as all the bigger firms that I mentioned with that people are, are probably familiar with. Mm-hmm. But I also feel that that's a bit limiting. It means that only the people who are rich already have access to quality financial advice. Like I, I, I have a problem fundamentally with that part, you know, yeah. being a millennial myself, this industry has an issue where, you know, firms aren't willing to be very patient with people on the front end of their careers who are building, you know, they're, they're still building something and without the right advice and guidance and access to quality information, it'll take them a lot longer to get there on their own. So mm-hmm. I say all that to say one of the things that I implemented when I took the offer to join this firm was to add the option to bill clients for planning on a monthly basis as well. So yes, we charge a minimum annual planning fee, but we actually allow clients to pay it in monthly installments and don't have it tied at all to how many assets they already have for us to manage. So there's there's room to bring more people into the tent sooner is the way that I like to say. So yes, minimum client size, but not necessarily. The minimum planning fee is the thing that we uh, tier more specific, specifically to. Well, you mentioned, you know, the part of that decision was because you're a millennial. And and I, I will say this as a Gen Xer who's not wealthy. Thank you for doing that as well. Cause well, yeah, I mean, it's not even just millennials yeah. who are clients that, that appreciate the model, but frankly, that's who I initially saw as the folks yeah. that were going to gravitate more to it. Right. Like I went to a college that produces a ton of engineers, even though I am not one myself, I actually studied engineering for two years and immediately after my sophomore year said, this is not for me. This is not mm-hmm. what I'm going to be doing for, for the next 40 years. And frankly, like, I'm very thankful that I, I had the the vision to, to do that. But anyway, so I, I have a lot of friends and, and folks who are engineers and they're younger on the front end of their careers. But the questions that they ask me are questions that like they need to be getting good advice to. And so that's just the way that I saw it as like, this is what's missing in the space is people usually are only willing to work with you if you get a million, five million, ten million dollars in assets. And that's a very, very small sliver of the Mm -hmm. US population. Yeah. Well, we, we spoke about size, but what types of clients do you normally work with? If you could describe them to me. Well, I, I, I mentioned the engineers. I, I work with a number of senior managers and executives in tech, hence the reason for this podcast being mm-hmm. called Tech Money. Basically, that's the, the, the group that I fit in well with, because as I mentioned, I went to a school that produces a ton of engineers. And then also just naturally the way that I understand things and explain it to people fits well with the typical engineer mind where folks love all of the nerdy details mm-hmm. and don't want you to leave anything out. Like they want as much data as they can to make a decision from. I, if you can't tell by my ramblings just yet, am a person who loves data and details and giving as much of it as possible too. And so I just fit naturally well with folks that work in tech. Okay. So is that tech people exclusively or do you, or are you a little bit broader than that? No, I, as well as the firm have a, a handful of folks in non-tech related fields. That's a good question. I I guess I should make sure that I, I let people know we don't discriminate. You know, we have small business owners that have architecture firms and finance firms, mm-hmm. um, all kind of like stuff. So no, it's not necessarily a requirement. We do have small business owner clients that, that own daycares, right? Like 
Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's everywhere. But they do make up a, tech folks do make up a very considerable portion of my own client base that I personally am responsible for within the firm. Okay. So but let me ask you this. I want to expand on just a little bit, not trying to needle you on this, but sure. there are so many other professions out there that mm-hmm. pay really well and that, that basically warrant needing to work with a financial advisor. Mm-hmm. Why tech specifically? I mean, you told us a little bit about the engineering background, but why tech? Well, for one here in DC where I am, you know, aside from the giant well-known thing companies and I guess, plus Microsoft, I guess they're, they're pretty there, there are a ton of companies that provide technology services to the government here, mm-hmm. whether it's okay. cloud migration or cybersecurity or maybe some sort of SaaS integration. And so I guess it's partly a case of going where the market takes you, right? Like those are the folks that I'm bumping into as I'm out and about and doing the things that I do. But more so, I bet it's probably because I'm a nerd at heart and I like I love getting into the nitty gritty details, like I mentioned, and understanding why things work, whether it's the tax code or a compensation plan or a real estate investment. And just like I said, engineers live and die by the details. And so they appreciate my approach, which means we seem to speak the same language. And so I think it's more a function of like that too naturally gravitates toward me. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious because you're all about the details, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that engineering background, obviously it shows, you know, cause you and I've had multiple conversations off air mm-hmm. uh, before this. And I can tell that you're extremely detailed. You like structure, but I know other people do too, like doctors and, and attorneys and things like that. Is there something unique about working with tech people or are, are they like the rest of your clients? Yeah, that's a fair question. Uh, well, for one thing, as I mentioned briefly, one of my areas of expertise and also like professional curiosity is in the tax code. It's tax planning. And secondarily, I would say is probably equity compensation, you know, stock options or restricted stock or whatever. And this group tends to be well-paid, which means that the IRS is a constant issue for them. Plus a considerable portion of their total compensation tends to come in the form of company stock. And so there tends to be quite a bit of concern around Mm -hmm. how and when to turn those stock certificates, I'll call them into actual cash. And that becomes a recurring conversation that I've, you know, started to build my own approach to and principles around and all that kind of stuff, which I'm sure I'll share throughout the course of this podcast. Um, but that that also makes a difference is there's not a ton of financial planners out there offering guidance on equity compensation to their clients. Like a lot of times they'll just tell clients, look, once the shares vest, sell them all, send me the cash and I'll diversify. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll I'll buy a diversified portfolio for you at that point, which may be the right advice at the time, depending on the client, but it can't be the right advice for every single client. Yeah. And so it tends to be given very broadly just because advisors don't really understand it. They don't understand the nuance. They don't understand mm-hmm. the intricacies of those plans. And so the best advice they can give is turn it into cash and then I know what to do. Yeah. Well, I want to change gears here a little bit. You, I mean, you, for those that don't know, you've been podcasting for a while now. I yeah. Mean, this is, this is not new to you, but this podcast is. So what made you decide to launch this particular podcast? Yeah. So you're referring to manage your damn money, which is mm-hmm. the other podcast I've been co-hosting for about four years now. And this podcast was launched, you know, all because of 
two separate conversations I had with friends of mine who both happened to be in tech. And so in that particular one, uh, that particular podcast, it was uh, a lot more uh, current events infused into, or, or I should say, money conversation infused into current events, things that mm-hmm. are pop culturally relevant. And it was a little bit more on the entertainment side than anything, but it always had like some kind of money focus to it. And in this case, I, I happen to be chatting with friends over Zoom now, you know, but mm-hmm. I could see their minds being blown as I was simply downloading like a bunch of data onto them that I just had stored in my brain and was happy to have someone ask me about it. So I had a chance to use it. Right. One was why can't I find a good podcast or audio book on stock options? Right. They all seem to want to talk about trading options in the stock market, but not how to manage the options your employer pays you with. And the other was, I'm considering going after a pretty big promotion, but I'm not sure if it'll be worth it in the end since it'll mean more work and more responsibility. And the IRS is going to take a big chunk of that extra money I get as a raise anyway. In both cases, like both friends said to me, how come you guys don't cover stuff like this on your podcast, referring to manage your damn money? And since that show is generally geared toward a different audience, like I said, or the, the theme is a little bit different. I finally said, like, what the hell? Maybe I'll create a new podcast and do just that. That'll allow me to get a little nerdier, speak to my fellow money nerds, and it'll just be two two different audiences. There'll probably be some overlap, but it'll be two different audiences. Cause you know, on MYDM, we intentionally keep things light. We're always concerned about talking over people's heads and boring mm-hmm. them. But on tech money, we'll go a bit deeper. And I assume the audience won't be bored because they came here for those nerdy details. Yeah. Well, you've given me a good description so far, and you alluded to the fact that you're going to be bringing on guests a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that is really a primary purpose of you doing this. But what else is this show supposed to be about? Yeah. So I, I guess I'm basically answering a lot of the questions I tend to get as one-offs at scale, right? People mm-hmm. often ask me questions about things like, budgeting, even though we hate the word budgeting as much as we hate the word dieting, uh, investing, tax planning, equity compensation, real estate investing, insurance, whatever. So I figured I'd just invite on a few subject matter experts who happen to be master of their domain, because I don't ever want to make it seem as if I am the the expert on everything. And so I'd rather go get somebody who knows more than I do and get into the nitty gritty details of each of those things and basically just have them educate me on that on that thing in real mm-hmm. time and invite everybody else in to listen to that conversation. So I was saying, like, I'm doing it at scale. It's I could have this conversation a hundred different times with a hundred different people who will ask me the question, or I can put it out there as an audio file and let people go and listen to it. So the next time somebody asks me what they should do about XYZ shares they have vesting, I can point them to that episode and say, actually, we just did something on that. Mm -hmm. You should go listen to that instead of having to to spend 30 minutes each time relaying that information. And so hopefully each episode will just kind of make the listener a little smarter about their money. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and put this part of the podcast on the shelf here. We've talked a lot about your history and we talked a lot about why you do what you do. Now Mm -hmm. I want to jump change gears again. What else are you involved in besides your work as a financial advisor? Yeah. So I mentioned that I'm I'm obsessed with this profession, or I, I should mention that I'm obsessed with this profession. I called myself a money nerd, but that means I also do a good bit of writing and some speaking when we're allowed to travel. I mentor quite a few up and coming financial planners. Uh, I'm also on the board of the Association of African-American Financial Advisors, 
I'm on the advisory board of a couple fintech startups, probably plenty more that I'm, I'm not remembering, but that's, that's the, the, the majority. All right. So Malcolm, when you're not working, what do you do for fun? Well, my wife and kid are seeing me a lot these days, um, nice. for better or for worse, <laughs> um, you know, with us all being kind of in each other's space. But before COVID, I used to get out and run pretty frequently. I'll hopefully at some point one day get back in, in real running shape and maybe decide to take on a marathon. I've done a half marathon, but never the full thing, but that's on my list. And I recently bought a, a Peloton and took my running indoors. Mm. So that'll keep me on track. Also love to ski, uh, since it never seems to snow anymore here on the, the East coast, by the time we make it back outside, you know, that activity may not exist anymore, but mm-hmm. I, I hope to ski again someday. Also a huge football fan, I guess, until they cancel the NFL too. Um, and I also <laughs> love listening to podcasts, ironically, like a lot of my travel time is spent listening to podcasts instead of new music. Yeah, well, it's funny because I I do a lot of this podcast stuff and road trips with my daughter. She loves podcasts, and so Mm. I've 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 been introduced to a few. She's all about the true crime stuff, so it's been interesting. The the drives are very interesting when you have something like that going. Those true crime podcasts will have you looking at your neighbors very. uh, (laughs) I'm telling you, (laughs) yeah, I, I I can't get into the 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 true crime just because it it makes me even more suspicious of society than I already am. Yeah. I mean, you, your neighbor has a garage open. You're like, why do they have three shovels? Exactly. There's no what, reason for three shovels. <laughs> yeah. Why, why did they have those track marks coming back in their uh, driveway and it didn't rain recently? Hmm. That's right. Hmm. All right. I'm going to ask you this one. I love this question. What is one thing that most people don't know about you? Confession time. Yeah. So I, probably the biggest thing for me is that I purchased my first house at 19. Um, at 19. Yeah. So, uh, right. People usually like, either they don't believe me or they're like, that was a typo. Say it again. Photos or didn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. The short version is, uh, I went to college, as I mentioned, planning to be a computer engineer and a couple years into it, it changed my mind for me. And Mm. so I had an academic scholarship that I lost once I changed my major. And coincidentally, my grandmother had just passed away like a few months into my sophomore year in college. And she left me like five, maybe $6,000. And so a thought popped into my mind that if I bought a house, the school would have to grant me in-state tuition, which would actually be even better than a partial scholarship. And so I used that little inheritance to cover closing costs. And because this was in Greensboro, North Carolina, I was able to buy a whole townhouse for only like, I don't know, $100,000 something like that. It, it was mm. very close to a hundred grand, but anyway, the rent came out to like maybe a hundred dollars more than I was already paying in, in rent each month to share an apartment with two other dudes. Yeah. And so keep in mind, this was prior to the housing bubble popping. So this was back when, you know, if you just had a social and a heartbeat, somebody would make you a loan with like zero money down. Mm-hmm. And so I guess this was maybe the one instance during that time where the, the freewheeling, everybody gets a loan attitude actually worked out. Because I, I had that house all the way up through 2018 as a, a rental property after I left the state. And that was my first experience, both as a homeowner and then as a landlord slash real estate investor. Mm. So did it work in state tuition? 
It did. I, nice. I, I immediately after I closed, like the same day after I closed on the house, I went to the administrative administration office and took them all of the closing documents and was like, I'm paying property taxes now. I am a resident of the state of North Carolina. Let's talk about this in state tuition. That's fantastic. That is that's smart, man. Yeah. That's good stuff. All right. Malcolm, what's your proudest achievement? Well, I guess we're talking about professionally because I just gave you my my proudest personal okay. uh, big thing aside from obviously being a, a husband and dad. But I, I would definitely have to be reiterating what you started this off with passing the, the certified financial planner exam. You know, it's it's normally recommended that you set aside like three years to complete the coursework that you need mm-hmm. to prepare for that board exam. But I was about to get married. And so I pushed really hard and got mine done in, in one year. It was brutal, but I got it done and we still got married. So uh, it wasn't uh, <laughs> it wasn't too, too bad, but it was it was it was pretty rough. But yeah, cramming all that study in class and and testing and everything else into one year and actually getting it done on my first shot was probably the proudest professional achievement for me. Nice. I, I think that maybe one of your future guests needs to be your wife so we can talk about her side <laughs> of the story. We'll see. Uh, well, no we'll promises see. at all. We'll see. <laughs> all right. All right. Malcolm, what's your idea of success? Yeah, I have a very simple definition of this one. Um, basically, it's being able to provide financially for myself and for my family now mm-hmm. uh, on my own terms, right? Like not having to ask anybody for permission to do anything not having to be anywhere or do anything I don't want to do and still earning enough of a living to be able to take care of us. That's that's what success looks like to me. That's what I've always been driving at, I guess, since I was a a, a young person. Well, here's the thing. I mean, you, you told me earlier that you were going to let me brag on you a little bit. And <laughs> and just from an outside perspective, as a 30-something, you, you're the self-confessed millennial. Uh, <laughs> As a 30-something old partner in an investment firm managing hundreds of millions of dollars, I would say that you're pretty successful that way. I will, uh, again, take the compliment and let you brag on me. Funny enough, like I always jokingly say, halfway jokingly say that like one thing I'm good at is talking about what I'm good at. But in this case, I don't even have to. You kind of got me covered. I appreciate that, sir. No problem. Anytime. (laughs) All right. Well, this is we're getting kind of to the last question here. And, and I need you to think outside the box on this mm-hmm. one, really. Um, if you had all the money in the world, meaning, you know, tomorrow morning you you wake up and there's six trillion dollars in your bank account, what would you be doing? So that's actually a tough one for me in the sense that I don't want to have to narrow it down. Like, to, so I'd be an actor, right? I always wanted to pursue my dream really? in Hollywood after college. Yeah. I, I, the, the problem is I just don't do struggle well. And like, I like to eat food on a regular basis, like two or three meals a day is my preference, right? So I had to put that dream on ice, but I do intend to kind of circle back at some point in the future and actually make that a reality once I'm financially to a point that like not earning an income because I'm not getting booked on any pilots doesn't make any real mm-hmm. difference. So that that's on my list, but it's not today's thing. But I also like have always wanted to be a football coach, like a high school football coach, because I think about the impact that my own coaches have had on me, even as a, you know, a grown man in his thirties, I can still like have moments where I can point directly to 
something that like one of my high school football coaches or even like as a little kid playing Pop Warner, right? Yeah. Some, some lesson that was buried in there. And so I'd love to be able to have that impact on, you know, a group of young men as well. But then separately from that, that would allow me also, I think, to be a teacher, which now I'm I'm kind of cheating and not answering your question with just one thing. But like high school football coach, that's also a teacher because I'd yes. really love to teach personal finance at the high school level and make sure that kids are getting introduced to a lot of the concepts that we reserve for people in their 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, getting that information as early on as they possibly can and yeah. making sure that they actually have a solid foundation before they ever really come into any money and know how to navigate the dollars that that come to them and all that kind of stuff that I wish I knew when I was 16. I'm telling you, man, that that is a beautiful thing. I love that answer because that's what we've faced really in, in, in our own personal life. My parents never talked about money. It wasn't something mm-hmm. that we talked about. So I didn't learn about money. I didn't learn about credit, didn't learn about those things. And my wife and I got married when we were 20, right? Wow. So then we're, we're both not knowing about money, not understanding how credit works and all that. And we made some serious mistakes. And so how my daughter learned, which her credit is close to 800. It's insane how good she is with money. Wow. She learned from our mistakes. So, mm-hmm. so I just told her, don't do what we did. Here's, here's, and we just kind of laid it out. We were very open about talking about money with her, but not everybody has that. So I love the fact that you would want to go and do that and make it so they don't have to learn from other people's mistakes and don't have to teach their children from their own mistakes. So yeah, that, yeah I'd love that. I'd love to see that happen, come to fruition here at, at some point. And if I had a trillion bucks, I'd, I was going to say, I'd, I just I'd need six trillion bucks and, <laughs> and I'm off to the races. Yeah. So any listener out there that wants to donate to the Malcolm teaching fund. <laughs> all right. I, I mentioned earlier, this is nationwide and hopefully people are going to say, you know what? This sounds like somebody I need to talk to. Or I'd love to talk to you. Mm-hmm. How can they get a hold of you? How can they get in touch with you, Malcolm? So a few few ways. I have a personal website out there, MalcolmEthridge.com, which is probably the easiest place to find whatever information you're looking for. And there's a spot to send in a message to me there. I'm also a regular contributor to, to Business Insider. I write for some other publications periodically. I have a number of blog posts and things like that that I've written that I'll, I'll go back to those two same sites. But then also they can follow me on social media at Malcolm on Money on all social medias. I'm on LinkedIn as well as myself as Malcolm Etheridge. And then also this show has its own email address and website. So tech-money.com is our landing page. And then podcast at tech-money.com is the email inbox for the show. So listeners who have questions, comments, concerns, kudos, all that good stuff. I guess I should leave out the concerns because we'll probably just delete those, but (laughs) I um, encourage people to send in questions there as well to make sure that we're getting real-time feedback on how we're doing and what we can be doing better with the show. Fantastic. Malcolm, thank you for your time and thank you for uh, allowing me to be on this journey with you. I'm excited to get started. I'm excited to see and hear from the guests you're going to be bringing on. Awesome. Yeah. I hope, I hope people will listen and we'll get to episode 100 or something and go, man, remember when we did that first episode and we thought six people were going to listen. <laughs> oh, but when we hit seven, we'll have a celebration. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Malcolm. And of course, our last thank you is going to go to you to listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the tech money podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. You can subscribe to the podcast by clicking the subscribe now button below. And this way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. 
We humbly ask that you share this podcast and leave a review as this actually does help others find the show. You can connect with Malcolm, like you said, on social at Malcolm on Money, and we'd love to hear from you and answer any questions that you do have. You can do so by emailing them to podcast at tech-money.com. Thanks again for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...